Good morning, David. Uh, this is a bit of a throwback to our Jiro podding from a couple of years ago. Uh, I woke up this morning and suddenly remembered the dream that I had last night, which was super strange. Uh, it was a random extra rest day in the Giro d'Italia and the British National Championship road race was being held. And here's the thing. Much to my surprise, I found myself lining up on the start line. Um, I thought I was there originally to just to present the television coverage, but no, I was riding for Sudal Quickstep. I was rider 21 in the British National Championship on this extra rest day at the Giro in the pouring rain somewhere in the north of England. And I set off, I was ner super nervous. I set off as a circuit race and I was instantly dropped um, uh, within the first few kilometres. But it was quite a tight circuit race. And when I was lapped by the field, this time it eased off a bit and I was able to just hold the wheels a little bit next time around. Um, but here's the thing, the org I had with me, the organisers had given me a little kitten to hold um, as I went, it, it, as, I, as I rode, um, just to keep me warm and happy. And... Geraint Thomas was in the race, despite the fact that he's got two, three days left at the Giro. And I remember talking to him in the in the bunch. He seemed really interested in my little kitten, um, particularly. And I said, have you got cats? And he said, yeah, I've got three at home. And I said, that's interesting. But what are you doing here anyway? Because you've got two mountain days and then the final stage of the Giro to win. And you're so close to winning it. And he said, yeah, I know, but... The sponsors, my sponsors wanted me to be present at the road race champion. I had no choice. So they helicoptered me off the Giro on this extra rest day. And here I am racing the racing the Nationals. Uh, I'll fly back this evening and back back in the Giro tomorrow. And I thought, oh God, it's so tough, isn't it? And I looked at his jersey and I saw the sponsor, the responsible sponsor's name. And it, the sponsor was called Keen Tech. I don't know what, I don't know what any of that means. Help. I, I think it might have something to do with imposter syndrome, but... Can you please interpret, as you used to do so ably a couple of years ago? Ciao, David. Well, firstly, Ned, um, I'm surprised it's taken three weeks for you to bring a dream to me. Uh, I've been missing them, and I won't lie, uh, I've been expecting one, so this is good. It's a good dream. Um, I think it's clear you're very fatigued because it's not got much depth to it. Uh, you're obviously so tired that you're wishfully thinking that there's another rest day, um, which uh, you probably do deserve, everybody there. Um, but also I think this says so much about your professionalism and your inability to say no, uh, which is something you should probably take a little step back and look at yourself in the mirror because... You do need to learn to say no a bit more. And the fact that you'd, even in a dream, accept a Nationals gig um, deep into the third week of the Giro d'Italia uh, when you had a rest day that you were wishfully wanting says a lot about um, your, your willingness to support the sport as a whole. Um, and also, I think, your absolute massive FOMO. Uh, you do have FOMO and that's not just professional FOMO I think that's a lot of schlugness there um, but that's one thing I think the fact that you weren't actually going over there for your professional media uh, role but as by the number 21 <clears throat> implying leadership status for Sudar Quickstep is um, ambitious 
um, very dreamy. And I, I quite like the fact it's that team because I do know it's a team that you secretly uh, admire massively. Um, I do remember us doing uh, a recon on cobbles and you chose to wear a a quick step jersey a few years ago, which um, I won't lie, was a little bit embarrassing, but uh, you really wanted to wear it. And the fact you even had it and you were traveling with it was surprising. Um, But it goes to show, I think, in this dream that you really do have uh, strong feelings for what is now Sudar quick step and... It's good to think that you are willing to take leadership of their team if they uh, asked you. Um, chapeau. Uh, getting dropped uh, within the first few minutes, realistic. Um, I have a picture of you trying to sprint as they're coming up to you and probably spending that whole lap psyching yourself up to try and get back on the wheels. Uh, the fact you could do it while holding a kitten um, is interesting. And the fact kittens to keep you warm hmm well I know you don't like dogs and I do know you're more of a cat person Uh, but this is really you are in a desperate desperate mental state if you're having to conjure up a kitten in a dream when you're leading leading pseudo quickstep at the nationals already been shamefully dropped managed to get back in which in itself is a huge achievement, but then have Garrett Thomas realise you're carrying a kitten and he's obviously just trying to make you feel better by engaging in the conversation, number one. Um, number two, telling you he has three kittens. Three, let's not get away from that, our magic number. And uh, I think we should also then have a look at Garrett. Uh, I think like you, he is the ultimate professional and... I don't think it's far from the truth that if uh, a sponsor asked him to to fly across, if he got UCIA dispensation, he'd probably do it, even in the leader's jersey on his birthday, um, because it was his birthday. So it must have been strongly in your mind, the fact he played such a key role. And you're clearly holding him in high respect, and to the degree where you actually think he would talk to you in a bike race uh, about cats. Um, Keen Tech... Good name. I know your aversion to uh, tech and the tech world as a whole. Um, I think it's almost Dickensian in the way you've named this evil company that has forced champion Garrett Thomas on what was his birthday yesterday uh, when you were having the dream um, to sacrifice, risk his Giro chances by making him fly across via helicopter. So that's nice. Well, it'll be a long helicopter trip from... Italy to to uh, England, um, but anyway, it's uh, damn keen tech. I say they don't deserve to be around, and no one's going to like them if they're doing that to Garrett Thomas. So I think keen tech is dead before it's even off the ground. Uh, so yeah. So anyway, um, I'm sorry you're so tired, and um, but you can't wait to get back home to your cat. And yeah, there you go. All right, Ned.
we leave behind us the uh, Hotel Parc des Dolomites, uh, inexplicably, in French, in a German, Latin, Italian-speaking part of the world. Uh, but yeah, our hotel last night was spectacular and French-speaking. It was a Francophone hotel. Built in 1904, vast, Belle Epoque, standalone edifice with a uh, big sweeping gravel driveway in front of it and a little round pond with a fountain in and a staircase up to a grand set of doors, balconies at all the levels above in a kind of set out in a, in a, uh, in a what shape would you call that? A kind of like, not a triangle, but a shape that's a bit like a triangle for which I don't have a word. Um, surrounded by Dolomiti peaks in Italian, but calling them French Dolomiti for some reason. Uh, I checked in last night and I was, I was curious about the building. I had to do some podcast editing. Um, so I, I went down to the bar, got a beer, and had a quick chat with the barman. I said, when was, this, when was this building built? And he said, 200. He was very precise. He said, 200 years ago. And I went, okay. And then he furnished me with a bit more information. and said, 1904. <laughs> Just talk about that. But it's clearly quite sure of it. And um, but we're sure that the maths just simply don't add up, do we? But, well, but by, by stage what is it, 19 today, we're quite good at maths because we've done a lot of Davide Baiz, if he gets up the road, picks yep. up 40 points, plus another 18 for a Katsu, da, da, da. You know, yeah. that's, that's some, like, 58, I can just yeah. do it like that, you know, added to his tally of 144, that's a, that's a lot more. It's um, more, isn't it? Yeah. I think that the, the most interesting mathematical calculation we're doing is, is the, the, the battle, or the non-battle between Derek G and Pascal Ackerman for second. In yeah, the we're focusing quite, we're focusing uh, quite intensely on that. Deep, deep yeah. cut, that one, is a subplot. Um, it's quite dark, that battle, because yeah. the entire battle is predicated <laughs> on... Yeah, Ackerman's not actually involved, it's just G building up a buffer on Ackerman, who's not interested. <laughs> but G's... It's, like, it's quite dark what he's doing, because he's actually just like deep down subconsciously hedging I think that's the best word yeah. against the possibility of Jonathan Milan slapping it down and he could be the first ever Canadian winner of the Melia Ciclamino and I don't know if that's true or not but I think it is did Raja Heshtar win it when he won it? because um, it's oh. let's, let's say no I don't think he did no, no I don't think he did either. no I think it might have been uh, Wakim that might have won it then uh, ah, or somebody else who yeah. was the last non, non-sprinty person uh, to person. it's 2011? 12. 12. Well, Cavendish was the first sprinty winner in 2013. And I think you're right. I think Joaquin Rodriguez. Yeah. And was it 2012 that Hedgedahl won it? Yes, I think it was. 2012 or 2011 when he won it. I can't quite remember. But it was it was there. Uh, yesterday, a rider. Was he? Yeah. Knock- I didn't see him, but I saw him on the social media of himself, on his own social media, um, wearing flip-flops. He's a big fan of flip-flops. Enormous beard now, right? He's a man of the hills, man of the mountains. He's a kind of lumberjack figure, isn't he? Yeah. Lives, lives in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Yeah. I mean, it is somewhere with a name, yeah. but I don't know what its name is or precisely where it is, but he lives in the wilderness of Canada, doesn't he? And does Ryder Heshtal things, in a, presumably in a checked, yep. checked in, shirt. In a, in a plaid shirt. Um, plaid. Yeah, he's, uh, he, he fits in really well with a Dolomiti. Um, and... Uh, yeah, he's, a, he's an interesting character. A very likeable fellow, actually, actually Ryan Hitchdale. But, but he's yes. a roadbook durer. Yeah. Yeah. A durer? Oh, right. Yeah, okay. He's a durer. But has been ever-present, because durers come and go a little bit of the road, but he's a road ever-present. I've never met him, though. I've only communicated via email. Yeah, you, you should meet him. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a big fan of flip-flops, even in, even in cooler weather, which is quite interesting. <laughs> well, maybe he's just got hot feet. Yes, good point. <laughs> I nearly, I nearly crashed, didn't I, this morning? When we, one thing we have to talk about briefly, I think, is although we're getting a bit increasingly more tired, fatigued, you came, you came down to breakfast 
in a, in a breakfast restaurant area fit for, let's say, 150 covers, just me and you in there, and, and one waiter. Um, and you came down with a real spring in your step, and you said, oh, Matt, I'm, I'm in a good mood, and, and I shared that good mood. It's sunny, a couple of days to go, um, and that mood spilled out onto our, the little transition period before we actually hit the road, because we've got roughly an hour to get up the top of the mountain. And we had two things to do, get some, get some nonsense, get some food, um, because we're not too sure what's available at the top of the mountain, and also get some fuel. Mm-hmm. And um, it, was re- it was really smooth, wasn't it? Went into, went into the, the, the um, QA Easy, there was a bloke there that did it, so he, you sorted that out. Belt and braces, wasn't Belt it? And braces. I, I, I would have been quite comfortable without the, the chap helping us out, but there was a chap, and he, he didn't hesitate. He, no. didn't, he didn't even ask us if we wanted to fill up, he just grabbed the nozzle, stuck it straight in. in. Yeah. And he did that thing that we both admire deeply of a professional pump attendant. Can, and how they do it, God alone knows. No. But he can actuate the nozzle such that you don't actually need to hold on to it anymore. And you could like do a crossword or something, just yeah, standing look at your phone. Look at your phone. Do, do, oh, no, not, not, not by a live petrol pump. No, not by a live petrol pump. I was going to say light up a cigarette, but probably um, probably not. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then just, yeah, look look at, yeah, do a Sudoku or something. How but do people do that? I don't know. We're saying it's, it's something that normal civilians, I don't think, can, can do. I've never seen a person in normal clothes do it, no. Ned. Um, and then, next up, bazzed round, back into the centre of town. We'd already sp- spotted and identified a supermarket, a gonad, the conad, conad. Uh, which we um, playfully call something else. This road bears to the right, doesn't it? Yep, it's doing that. Because that road looked different. The shadows were strange, Ned. It's making sure we're going in the right direction. Right, OK. Um, we went in. I've never, we've never been so quick in the nut section in, in, in all of our days. And we've been... Despite the, the fact that there was a... Probably the best nut selection we've seen anywhere, actually, throughout Italy. You just went dried peaches, bang dried peaches. Apricots. I went uh, apricots, dried, yeah. dried apricots, so I went bang pistachios. We knew we'd got some sesame snacks unopened already in our nonsense bag, which is three or four days old. Um, but still some bits in there. You then got some salami and cheese rolls. I decided at that point to leave you to it on your own. And that was a risk, leaving you in there on your own. But you found your way out, that was great. I went back, scanned the Gary, Popped in the destination. By the time you got in, PPO, 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 pronto passage, obligatoire. Yeah. We're just about to take off. You said, "No, Matt, not. Don't. No. The sticker's not on. Bah! Out the car, stuck the sticker on, and we're on the road. The extra. Today we need an extra sticker for extra privilege. Really, um, it says accesso a tre cime di Lavaredo uh, because that's where the finish line is. But they're limiting the number of even normally accredited vehicles. So far from being civilian today, we are not just military but paramilitary is yeah. that even I don't know it, well high ranking generals in the RCS army yeah, I, I think high ranking because I think paramilitary yeah, su- something, something else. Su- suggests a guerrilla group yeah uh, like fake accreditation yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so we are official uh, yeah we're not going rogue not, par- not par- yeah <laughs> balaclavas and stuff like that no yeah. Um, yeah. Provi- pr- provisional RCS <laughs> yes god uh, yeah so we're 23 minutes away and again Got a beautiful day, high pressure ridge. Um, we over dinner last night. We looked at the weather forecast for the next couple of days, and thank goodness it's going to be sunny. 28 degrees in Rome, so there's a real buoyancy um, about um, our demeanour, our attitude, our, our, our short-term outlook on life is good, even though it's tempered by a three and a half hour transfer tonight, yeah. and then what, whatever happens on after the time trial, God knows. Uh, car hire, planes, other other cars, hotel, oh, who knows? Yeah, uh, that's going to be, well, I'm sure we're going to pod about it, but the, the yeah. getting out of getting out of um, the Dolomites and into Rome. 
is going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of elements isn't there a lot, a lot, a lot of moving parts um, but I'm, I'm I've already factored in an ex- a, a lot of things that don't quite go right I don't know what they are but I've just factored, I've just packed them in a load of random ones I've just, they're, they're, they're in there um, and I'm getting to bed at three so if we can do any better than that um, well, it's a bonus um, today could be, well it's going to be really interesting, totally unpredictable, the final climb, but I think we're going to have to wait till the final climb. I think it's going to be, don't think the break will go to the line today. I think we're bedding in for upwards of four hours of talking about Salvatore Puccio setting a pace. Um, we're going to be looking at him quite upright on a bike, quite square features, yeah. you know, not in a bad way, in a good way, it's chiselled. Yeah. Um, it's quite a square jaw, the Sicilian, uh, Salvatore Puccio. We'll probably come up with different ways of reworking the same phrase. Such a loyal servant to the team over so many years. And yeah. such a valuable and important part of that team. And in many ways underappreciated. We'll probably say that a few times. Yeah, and uh, and also when he looks back at his career, there's one that he's, he's, he's worn the Malia, Malia Rosa as well. We'll mention that. We'll mention that um, he's, a, he's never been with any other teams. Been with them for like 11 years. And we'll also mention the similarities to Swift. The fact Swift is a very good trainer, is consistent. There's lots and lots of things. There's lots of topics we can talk about uh, about those two riders. Um, uh, well, but that, yes, that, those two. We're, yeah. we've done them. Just yeah, yeah. Done, yeah. yeah. But we'll do again. We'll just be regurgitating that, won't we? Yeah. Uh, for yeah, as I say, upwards of four hours. Oh, yeah. Um, but it will kick off at the end. It's so steep, isn't it? We're gonna. I think we're gonna drive up the route. Aren't well, we? that uh, That potentially is quite a good yeah, bit of podcasting, right here. Um, so. Yeah, we'll button off for now, yeah. um, but I don't rule out another bit of podcasting looming, that will come in between this words that I'm saying live now and the next bit. Well, I mean, obviously there'll be something else, but I don't know what the next... There is no running order, you'll be no, surprised to say. The, the running order is determined by the thermodynamic arrow of time. Second time we mentioned it, but that will be the running order, and that will be determined by... Talk, talking of which, yeah. have you ever read Time's Arrow? No, what well, your name is? No, well, I've no, talked no. about this on the podcast a long time ago before, so never stray so far. Loyal listeners won't want me to go back over talking about Martin Amis's Times Arrow, mm. um, but it's one of the greatest bits of literature ever written. It's an astonishing feat of imagination, and I just wanted to say about a week ago, Martin Amis died, and um, I admired him. I never oh, actually saying that I never met him. It's not true, Matt. I once. I once went to oh look at this we're passing under a yeah Cortina two of the rings have fallen off but this was that an Audi looks like an Audi sign looks like an Audi sign but the Cortina is that was the location for a Winter Olympic Games because when we drove sorry to interrupt you a bit about Martin Amis no no but when we drove (laughs) I'm glad you did (laughs) and so are our listeners when we drove past this town yesterday on the way to our hotel there's a ski jump um, and it a wooden ski jump from the, I think from the 1960s. Um, Rockledge would have been loving that. I feel well out. Loved it. Well, it's not going really, to, it won't be far. The course goes nearly past it. He might give it a nod. There'll be a shot and there'll be, a, he might do the little sign and, you know, yep. who knows. Yep. But uh, yeah, we're in proper rog territory. Is this why the Ford Cortina is called the Ford Cortina? Yeah. Go maybe, with it. Go with it. Go with it. Go with it. Um, who knows? Yeah. Um, Ford. Ford, yeah. Um, years ago, about 10 years ago, I was asked by my then publishers, uh, Penguin Random House, to go down to a big conference for all their staff, a huge company, Penguin Random House, um, to present uh, to their staff the upcoming list of publications for the next year in sports. Um, about a dozen titles, including one of Tim Moore's wonderful books. I had a book coming out and stuff. And all I had to do was, and this big, in the 
Grand Hotel in Brighton. I built up a big stage, about 600 delegates. I had to just had about 10 minutes on stage where I had to interview Tim and say a few things about the other sports titles that were coming up. And I said, yeah, all right, I'll do that. Don't mind doing that. That sounds fun. Um, they put us up in the Malmaison Hotel the night before. I'd been busy in London, so I didn't arrive until quite late, but uh, just in time for dinner. We all sat down for dinner about nine o'clock. Bunch of authors, yeah, from Penguin Random House. Very nice. And I, I was the last one there. There's about a dozen people. They left a place at the table late, uh, empty for me, and I walked into this room, and I sat next to Ian McEwan and Martin Amis. Two hitters, aren't they? Two literary hitters. Yeah. And uh, were they were they were they pleasant? Were they, they were, good company? They were they were good company to each other. Not um, to you. Not so much to me. Um, but they weren't rude. They were just um, you know they were men of the same generation, same sort of, and they were clearly good friends. Um, but I it was quite I was quite struck dumb actually by just sitting next to them and and at halfway through the dinner, Ian McEwan said, I think he was asked by one of the um, publishers there, what, what are you going to do when you what are you going to say when you speak tomorrow at the conference? And he said. I'm going to read, you're going to be the first people to hear um, a bit of writing from my new book, which was called The Children's Act, I think. Um, and no one's, no one's heard it yet, and I'm going to read a bit out of it, and there was a bit of a, oh, that was a bit special sort of thing. Um, yeah, but Ian McEwan, and uh, he's still alive, and sadly, Martin Amis passed away the other day, but yeah, Time's Arrow, if you don't know it, tells, uh, very briefly, because I have talked about it on the tells a particular story that is ingenious the story but it tells the story entirely backwards all right so everything is backwards so eating all the characters the characters eating defecating and falling in love i was at this event i don't know who i was consistently getting younger but it was an event where just everything's backwards congregating for some sort of thing yeah it's i decided in my feet and he takes it to the nth dress he just sees As a that hipster. idea through. No, you know, to it's hipsters dress basically like like Swedish fishermen, aren't they? Really, uh, tra- trousers yeah. okay. quite high. Um, to the top of a mountain yeah. we go. Nice, but totally ill. Showing a little bit of ankle. Yeah, a bit of ankle um, and a, 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 a box shirt. Um, and I have got those items of clothing in real life, but what I, I haven't got um, and what I, I, I won't wear uh, indoors is a, is a woolly hat. But I had one on, um, and I, I had some round like. Um, uh, sunglasses on round ones like John Lennon would wear back in the day. Um, they pink glass in or anything. I don't know. I think they were just. I think they were just normal. <laughs> but, but the thing about the dream that I can still feel now is the fact people were looking at me um, in an admiring way, and I, I and, and I can still feel that the, the, the sort of warm sense of pride I felt as, um, at this event because I was been because I for the first time worn a hipster woolly hat. And I, I don't know why. The reason we were having this conversation was because we, we're driving up the mountain. It's early in the morning, but um, already people are making their way up. But some are cycling up. I don't think they're, don't think they're allowed to drive up as civilians. Um, but uh, others are walking up with using those walking sticky things. The alpine sticks, whatever. Al- the, uh, well, if they're not called alpine sticks, they flipping should be. Let's yeah. call them alpine sticks. Yeah. Um, and you said... Uh, as we passed a couple of uh, middle-aged men, you said, oh, I bet Roglic has got a pair of them and some tight-fitting shorts. No, loose-fitting oh, shorts. No, no, sorry, yeah. Uh, as if they're like two sizes too big. And then for some reason, like really woolly socks, but I know the uh, white like millet well. Yeah, like millet socks. Uh, 15 quid for a pair, um, roughly, I, I guess. With that kind of like wholemeal texture. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, so, like, uh, like a bowl of um, wholemeal porridge. Uh, in, in sock form. In sock form. Yeah, but, uh, they, uh, but sometimes they wear two pairs. 
so they, 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 there's less chafage. Um, but, but always rolled up just over the top of the walking boot. Yep. So there's a real particular look. But we thought that Roglic would definitely look like that. And then we went even further, like slightly, maybe rosy cheeks. Uh, this is in years to come, isn't yeah, it? When he's re retired Roglic. Um, yeah. You know. um, but yeah, I, I can imagine Roggers just walking up a, up, up, a, up, a, up a climb like this, but happy with his lot. Yeah. In a, he strikes you know. a contented figure, doesn't he, yeah. Rog Pro -pro -pro probably, um Probably carrying some kebab meat. In, in one of his pockets as well, I'd imagine. And maybe, just maybe, a little flask with some Slovenian... With a nip of something. Yeah, nip of something Slovenian and just to get, you know, just keep the chill off the night. Yeah, ciao! Yeah, that was a small cluster of... Uh, Tifosi. Of Tifosi just setting up their trestle table uh, for the events for later. Buongiorno, welcome to Judgment Day Part 1 at the Giro. Today, of all the many tests in the mountains, is by far the hardest. Five categorised climbs ascending three times to over 2,000 metres and culminating in the savage grind to the finish line in the stunning surroundings of Trecime di Lavaredo. A day in which the entire Giro can not only be lost, it can genuinely be won. As if to prove how fortune can fluctuate in the high mountains, yesterday the podium standings were reshuffled once again. And Primoz Roglic gets past Thomas and makes a point at the finishing line and takes potentially a little gap over Thomas as that line approached. Once again, the salient point I managed to miss from the commentary edit was that the stage was won by Santiago Butarago, who played a funny old game with Derek G, our favourite Canadian rider, apart from Ryder Hedgedahl who we were talking about earlier this morning. Probably actually including Ryder Hedgedahl. Well, at certain, certainly at this point in his life. He's right up there with Ryder Hedgedahl. Um, yeah, equal standing. Um, but Boutraga beat him uh, rather cleverly. And he, at uh, 23 years of age, he took his second, his fourth professional victory and his second stage at the Giro d'Italia. So that's what he does, Santiago Boutraga, riding for Bahrain Victorious. He goes to the Giro, he waits until late on in the race and he takes a mountain stage. And he's from Bogota, which means that uh, the altitude that they faced today at the top of the uh, Trecime climb was uh, not particularly bothersome to him. I'm talking quite slowly, quite heavily and quite ponderously and I haven't really sort of kicked into any particular wit or um, verve or intellect yet because I'm absolutely floored by a pizza that we've just stopped for at the, at, yeah, at the bottom of the climb. It was a... Um, Capriccioso, capricciosa, um, it, which involves artichokes, fungi, those particularly slimy fungi, the, the mushrooms that you get out of a tin, and some unnecessary prosciutto. Uh, and I, 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 I couldn't finish it. You, you, you did. You said about probably two or three times, no, three or four times during the during the, your, your meal, how much you loved it, which I've never seen you. Normally, when we have pizza, you're kind of quite dismissive, and sometimes it's borderline starts to spoil the experience but you didn't on this occasion um, you, you were like really embraced right? it have I ruined pizzas for you it's in the like, past it's just like just get on with it um, in my mind that's what I'm saying to Ned just we're here having this pizza 
it's not cheese on toast. I know you've, you've expressed that, that how about we just eat the pizza? And on this occasion, I didn't have to say that even in my mind because you immersed yourself in the pizza. And it, on one occasion, you, you set, you'd finished your mouth, you sat back on the chair, you actually put your knife and fork down, you looked me in the eye and said, this is, this is wonderful pizza. And then you just started to, like a, you paused for breath and you just went back in again. Um, it was great pizza, and it was a, apparently quite a renowned pizza um, yeah. purveyor. Um, yeah, uh, the, the ex-military. Main, main man, the, the, the place was called, uh, translated, the Colossal Gnome. Yeah, and that, straight off the bat, that's not, a, for me, because I'm not a big gnome fan, that's, that's a, it's not exactly a no-no, but it's a warning sign. It's a no gnome. Yeah, no gnome. <laughs> it's not exactly a no-no. It's a no-gnome. I know, because I've, I've, I've not liked gnomes since I became aware of them, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. None, no gnomes have ever done me harm, but I just can't see the point. They're slightly scary, sinister. I'd never trust one, put it, put it that way. Um, yeah. But, and I didn't like... I didn't like the sign. It was like a weird, aggressive gnome with these strange, like, Robin Hood boots on, eating a strange, thick pizza. Purp- uh, it was purple. It looked like pizza. a pie, didn't it? Yeah, it looked like a pie pizza. So I didn't like the sign, but it was so extraordinarily strange that I thought, we've got to, we've got to give it a whirl. And importantly, it was packed with punters. So this has got to be good. No, it was, it was really it was good. great. And it was 21... So you had a beer, I had a Coke, two pizzas, 21 euros. Crazy. And they were big. Yeah. Um... Yes, uh, I mean that, 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 that's uh, exactly right. That oh, hell. Well, there was a car driving on the wrong side of the road, but narrowly, narrowly uh, avoided a, another head-on collision. We, well, not another one. We haven't had one, but we've avoided several that we didn't have. Um, yeah. But the the uh, <laughs> the main man, the, the 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 colossal gnome himself, was quite a short individual, um, very close cropped hair, borderline no hair at all, and. The more we looked at the detailing on the walls, the various different things on the wall, the more the penny dropped. I mean, he is a runner-up in world championships, I think, in pizza making, or certainly regional championships. Yeah. Um, but he's also he was ex-military and ex-special forces and ex-police, ex-fire brigade, ex anything involving kind of being quite tough. Uh, he was ex, he was ex that. There was even some sort of um, whether it was military or police based, and in and in Italy, let's be honest, there's not much difference between the two. Uh, uh, no, in many areas, uniform uh, areas, uniform, uniform style. But no, there's a, there was a diving one as well, so a police or army diving award that he'd had, and he'd been in various groups within the army and police with uh, interesting. Um, I don't know, insignia is the word, with like knives and, and, and like lightning bolts, which is, so basically, we felt quite safe. It was going to kick off in there. We were going to be fine. We were in safe hands. But he was, yeah, he was working very hard, wasn't he? There wasn't many staff, but there was a lot of punters and he was, um, he was doing a good job. But yeah, yeah, well, I think we were in relatively safe hands and the pizza was flipping brilliant because he was throwing all the dough, wasn't he? He was, he was doing the bases. Yeah. We're stopping here. Yeah. And, and the, um, yeah, the Giro was in town. A lot of Tifosi were stopping, um, yeah, this just was some roadworks, and we're actually we're right behind what's called the SMG uh, truck, um, which beams the television pictures into your house. This is it. So, yeah, it's it's responsible for your your yeah. And we've stopped behind it. It's a Dutch truck from Ian for the Euromedia Group. Yeah, and it's um it's got the word it's got EMG and uh, like a little spot logo kind of thing, like digi- digi- digital kind of logo. And then the word simply connectivity, um, through space and satellites. So that big dish on the top, which is now folded down, because if it was folded up, it would be extraordinarily unaerodynamic, and the fuel consumption that that vehicle go through the roof. Thank goodness it's folded down. But our, our voices um, have been for the last for the best part of 95 hours over the last 
nearly three weeks, our voices have been just beaming all around the world, haven't they, from that dish in front of us that we've randomly ended up following on the Giro d'Italia. Ben Healy. Yes. Moment of the day. Um, yeah. Two moments. Two moments of the day. Because he... <laughs> just... We were perplexed, but we loved every moment of Ben Healy's role today. So basically, in short, because I know that many of you will have watched the Giro, many of you won't, but in short, the break went away, 15 riders in the end, in bits and bobs, they all came together, 15 riders on the front, Ineos started to ride, 5 minutes 30, um, nobody is a threat to the King of the Mountains, Ben Healy's missed it, he's second overall, Tibo Pino's missed it, aerial shot um, of... Um, uh, Sabatoli Puccio leading on this climb everything's just that holding pattern that we all become familiar with and we'd all settled in next thing this little darting figure in the um, in that Harlequin kit that I like to call it of EF Education he's supposed to come punting up the inside boo boo off the front from about 30 riders back as well they're really grinding it up this climb and and, and then the writhing body of, of in blue in the Malia Azura of Thibaut Pino in hot pursuit um, and he it just went clear, and it was, and then the gap went to five, five fifteen. So he's trying to ride across a five-minute thirty <laughs> gap on his own. Are you seeing fifteen committed riders up front on a on a long climb, the first Cat Two climb of the day? And but uh, he had sixteen kilometres of climb to try and get it done. But you've seen how hard it is for solo riders mm. to get across forty-five seconds, and there's Ben Healy trying to get across five minutes and thirty seconds. It was a, it was, a, it was an amazing effort, um, and he was he was making headway. But I don't know, I think it was a bold move, and I love the Ben, this isn't a criticism of Ben, it's just an observation, it was a bold move, I think it would have been a difficult one, even if he'd broken the will of Thibaut Pino. But who knows, he's, he's that good, he might have done it, but what would have happened when he got there, after, you know, it would have taken the best part, 20Ks to get across perhaps? But anyway, so, Thibaut Pino gets Jake Stewart, teammate, um, to help bring it back. Jake can't quite do it, so Pino has to go and pursue it on his own. Catches him, sits on him for a bit. Ben, quite rightly, well, this isn't going anywhere. They ease off. Thibaut Pino doesn't really say anything, but then Ben drops alongside, and they kind of shake hands. And Ben smiles, and Thibaut Pino kind of doesn't, but does, and accepts yeah, it. It kind of nods. It like, awkward, awkward. It was, it was strange, wasn't it? It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't Pino being... The chimp didn't come out. Pino wasn't all kind of pointy, shouting... What are we doing here? Like, it's just yeah. like, I, don't, I don't know whether I'm embracing this really, Mr Healy. I've only just met you, um, and you, you're being random. It was, it was, it was, he was perplexed. So, and then we thought, well, actually, as extraordinarily an effort it was, it, it entertained us. The bunch was torn asunder in the wake of this attack by Healy because Ineos tried to chase a little bit as well and it was on a big climb um, before the first big climb that's the thing there's climbs before the climbs there's so much elevation today anyway so they went back to the bunch caught run out 10 minutes later after that handshake boing Healy's gone again yeah, having been having been admonished by Salvatore Puccio Properly. when he dropped back first time round, Puccio went, "What are you doing? Five minutes thirty? Are you yeah. stupid?" And Healy just laughed at him. Yeah, he did just laugh. Smiled at him. Smiled at him. And they did it again, yeah. uh, and then got caught again with by Pino. Pino didn't actually remonstrate. He just sat on his wheel. There was no handshake this time, and then, and again, um, there was a little bit of remonstrating from a Salvatore Puccio. But all Healy did was smile. And the, and the thing that crowned it all for me, and we, we talked about it yeah. on air, yeah. was he rode past Rowan Dennis, who was giggling like a schoolboy. Yeah. It was hilarious. Dennis loves that kind of thing. Because he's a disruptor. And Healy, these, these, we're just discovering who Ben Healy is and how he's ridden. And we know how strong he is. But 
increasingly he's a disruptor and I quite like that there's a charm to it there's a, a, cock, a little kind of cocky swagger but it's it's wrapped up in something quite special that you can't help it endears he's an endearing rider and it doesn't I think there's respect there but it's under his own rules he'll just do what he wants and it's um it's important um and uh, no fair play but I, the way that the Roan Dennis was just laughing his head off rather than saying like a lot of the older riders might what are you doing mate there was an accepting that hey there you go I'm about to cough like we did on air loads of times today <coughs> oh, yeah we had nut <coughs> problem is well, yeah we both got slightly <coughs> That's what's happening. And Matt's, Matt's had that cough for quite a while, as you've probably heard on the podcast, actually, the last few days. I'm just beginning to get affected by it as well. Um, and we, but the problem is we both really like salted pistachios during commentary, and they do have a habit of just suddenly catching in the back of your throat. You don't chew on air. You kind of chew, but you, even then you button back on, you open your microphone again, and you haven't totally cleanly swallowed every little bit of nut residue yeah. and something will just catch at the back of your throat when, it, when you least yeah, it's like expect it like that yeah. so I yeah you were particularly afflicted with it today there's so many sentences um, that I didn't finish and a couple you finished for me many were just left hanging and, and have never been completed because uh, both of us were buttoning off yeah and, and both in nuts so you know nut distress so quite often I would shell a, shell a nut eat it you, and then swallow Mic on, and then that would give you a chance to deep to, to crack a nut and do it. So we're all we're like it. There's like a nut like, nut, like nut tennis, wasn't yeah. it? Really, <laughs> um, nut tennis. But there, there's a price for that. Um, but a, a wonderful. I think I think pistachios are my favourite nut. But when you're chatting a lot, there's it gets to a point you can just feel there's something at the back of your throat, and eventually you've just got to just got to give into it. Um, and it's yeah, it's not exactly nut fatigue. Um, something along those lines. But yeah. Yeah, by, by which we mean it wasn't really until there you go again. It wasn't it wasn't really until um, we reached the, the final climbs, mm. and um, most specifically actually that beautiful lake that was on the plateau in between the two climbs, um, where we met Mr. Brexit commentator. That was interesting, wasn't it? We parked up there this morning, just before we drove the last seven or eight k to the finish, and um, we we, par- we we knew we weren't going to stay there long, so we knew we weren't. We were probably parking somewhere where we kind of we weren't borderline weren't supposed to. Yeah, but we weren't in front of anybody. We're, no, but it was, no, 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 we clearly, weren't in convenience in a parking spot. Yeah, it looked a bit like yeah. a private car park. And yeah. so we, we, we sort of parked up quite neatly and thought, well, we're not going to be here for long. And we've got the stickers on the car, so people yeah. will understand. But straight away, this old boy, and he, it was an old boy, he must have been into his late 70s, possibly. Um, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say, yeah, maybe 75, 80, I think, yeah. Is a, a, old a, chap, appeared from nowhere. Um, and uh, at first addressed us in Italian because he thought you must be Franco Pellizzotti, yes. which is fair enough. But once you realised you weren't, he, he switched. He switched to um, surprisingly immaculate English, um, informing us that um, this was a private car park. It was his bar, and um, we said, then we switched to English. There's no point in us pursuing Italian. Then, so we said, well, listen, we just we just want to stop for a quick coffee. We'll be 10, 15 minutes, and he went, that's okay, so long as it's 10, 15 minutes. And we, went, we thanked him very much. And we wandered off to it. He, then he said, there's a cafe up there on the right. He told us where to go for a coffee because his bar was, wasn't open yet. And uh, which we th- said, thanks very much. And as we were just leaving the car park, he said, did you vote for Brexit? Yeah. Uh, and we, well, you said you've got an Irish passport, which you have. Um, and I just said no. And then he fell about laughing, though, both of us. Yeah, we, we did. We did chuckle. And he said, because uh, he, he, I can't remember the words he said, but he said, he said, I think I know more about Brexit than you, and the impact it's had on me as no, well. He said, "He said I know more about. I know more about." He said pretty much verbatim, "I know more about 
yeah, that European um, politics and the impact of Brexit than most of the people who voted in your in your that's referendum. It, that's it. Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, he was an, he was an interesting chap, um, a, a very interesting chap. And then I don't need to repeat the rest of the stuff he said, I guess. But it was he was quite. But his English was he was just a character, wasn't he? Quite forthright, yeah. um, direct, but also very friendly at the same time. And he had a little dog, didn't he? Lovely did he? Dog. Yeah. Did he? I think he did. Did or didn't? Uh, or I can't remember else. I don't know. We've I seen got, so many dogs on this journey. I got to another dog at the top of the uh, top of the climb to the cafe. Oh, did you? Uh, Dutch lady. Okay. Um, I got chatting to a dog. Oh, I could go here, couldn't I? Yeah. And what did the what did that dog look like? Uh, it was like a like a mini Samoyed again, a fluffy dog. Oh no! I've got I've got a picture of it. Actually, if you look at my Instagram, I posted a picture of the view today, and uh, and if you. Like a, a reel, and at the end of it is a still picture that I zoomed in on with me and the dog. So you can look at it there. If, if you want, if yeah, if you want to, if you want to, you don't have to. But it's a, quite a fluffy dog, but a mountain type of dog. Very, yeah, very lovely looking little dog. Lovely little face. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know how we got into that. Oh, because the other man had a dog. And then we're halfway up the climb, and when the race got to the climb, well. Old Derek G at the front, they had enough of a buffer, didn't they? Oh, he chipped off, didn't he? Derek G. Well, Larry Warbus went first, didn't yeah. he? And then Derek G countered. The they, they all got across and through the rain, Derek G suddenly, and he, he was looking surprised. Yeah. Two kilometres, he was still off, two, two K to go. He was still holding off Santiago Butrago yeah. somehow. Yeah. I th- clearly, Butrago was, it's fair to say, a negative split, wasn't he? Letting Derek G hang out there, bringing him back slowly. And I think, I mean, when you've got that much under the hood as a climber, and, and you talked about the how easier, how much easier it would be for Bertrago to ride at that sea level as well. Plus, he's a lighter rider, a pure climber, and the amount that Derek G was fighting, it was some ride by G. It really, really was another second place at the end of the day. But um, when Bertrago finally caught him and then just went bang and and hit him, um, there was nothing that poor old Derek G could offer up in response but did survive to take second place but yeah um, a blinding performance by Butrago but just paced it perfectly did what he needed to do in the break to keep the break moving when they were starting to hesitate look at each other and as soon as they did that the time was dropping although they weren't necessarily being directly pursued they were just losing time that had been taken from them but so he feathered the break really well and in the end it was a a brilliant win he was always the favourite from that group but I think sometimes being the favourite can add quite a lot of pressure but he dealt with it and um, was by far the strongest on that climb. But yeah, gee, what more can you say? Now he's leading the sprints, isn't he? Second in the mountains, second in the points, four second places. Yep. That's, yeah, he's, yeah. Just um, he's, had, he's had a bizarrely brilliant Giro d'Italia, yeah. and I hope he I hope he gets a fat contract or something. He's thoroughly right. deserved. Um, now your moment. I hope you get a fat contract um, for your moments of absolute genius commentary today, because just before the the, the final two climbs. Rolling through that little town, whose name I could not remember. Oh, was it Cortina? Yes, it was Cortina. Going through Cortina, yeah, through, yeah, just yeah, on the yeah, cobbles. Yeah. yeah. Which is going to host the Winter Olympics in 2026. It is, yeah, after hosting it in 1956. 70 years after they last hosted the Olympics. Um, and I, we still don't know whether or not Ford Cortina is named after that. We just don't know. Um, I'm going to say yes, it is. I'm going to just say probably. Um, but suddenly, Primoz Roglic pulled over the side of the road. Uh, called his team car up and they're racing they're really kind of riding to the foot of this climb so they're, they're, ri- they're riding pretty hard on the front and we thought oh he's got mechanical that's a bad place for a t- mechanical but very unhurriedly he 
unclipped and then laid his um, bike down and instantly had his, well, spare bike prepared for him. But And then got back on, clipped in and got back on. And you noticed, really revealingly, you noticed that it was a specially adapted bicycle. Can you please explain? Yeah, it, it was a same, I think it was the same frame because they, um, Surveyor use... I mean, they're all on the aero bikes now, but there's a light climbing bike. Couldn't, I think it was the lighter climbing bike that you use rather than the aero frame. So there's a few hundred grams, maybe 100 grams saving, 90 grams saving there. But significantly more than that, um, it was a one-by drivetrain, which means, as mo- most of you will know, there's no front mech. mech. So normally at the, all the road bikes, save for that bike, would have double chain rings, one at the, uh, two at the front, and then 11 or 12 at the back, depending on... Your, your equipment supply, but he'd opted for a single chain ring, very small, probably between 30, no more than 36, probably 34 teeth at the front, which I've never seen happen. And then right at the back, he had a ridiculously wide, wide but close, well, low but close ratio set of sprockets on the back to optimize seated climbing uh, on gradients that, that, they, that they faced a couple of kilometers later. And you could see by the cadence that he was pedaling, he was two or three sprockets lower than Geraint Thomas, for example. But that's the way he, he, he likes to ride. So clearly, there'd been a, maybe several recons done. He probably spent time on that climb, really honed in on it to try and make a difference. Unfor- I mean, it did make a difference in the end, didn't it? It took three seconds um, on Geraint Thomas in the end. But yeah, I noticed the different coloured sidewalls on the tyres. There might be slightly different tyres as well. I'm not too sure. But yeah, I don't think there's... We've seen riders change bikes um, in TTs, but never to a bike with a single chain ring on for a climb like that. That's, a, that's the first time that's happened that I'm aware of. So the really interesting thing about this is, um, one, it, it kind of mirrors what Tadej Pogacar did against him in the final individual time trial of the Tour de France in 2020, where Pogacar rode on junior gears, which have that, as you've described, that, 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 that relatively, um, what's the word for it, tight kind of so you when you change in between the gears close ratio close ratio yeah. thank you that's what i'm trying to say so roglish is essentially doing that except not in a time trial and then switching bike not in a time trial secondly and this is i think really interesting you noticed it brilliantly i don't think anyone else would have noticed that necessarily and you started talking about it in the commentary and because gunter who is doing the world feed i mean he's doing the pictures that you're watching at home even if you're watching it on eurosport gcn you're watching gunter's pictures who's listening to our commentary gunter was very attentive to what you were saying and then radioed to the cameraman who was next to primo Roglic to show us uh, the chain set uh, which he duly did at which point it became clear to the yeah. world literally what to, the, done, to yeah. what he'd done and by the world i mean every ds in the team convoy behind who was streaming those pictures would have um, discovered at the same time that Roglic had just done that so you noticing that and Gunter reacting and the cameraman framing it up actually <laughs> informed yeah. informed the rest of the peloton of that tactic so you intervened in the race I mean I don't know ultimately what they would have done with that information but if Roglic was kind of keeping that up his sleeve all of a sudden you 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 um you told everybody with a big loud yeah. hailer yeah I mean it was I think it was such such an quite an important thing and I, I remember almost talking to myself so, and so when we, we I know that the, the guys are listening and and sometimes gently you can say well it would be good to, interesting to see this the, the, that side of the bike just to ensure just to show people what the changes is 
and then it happened and, and then clearly that, that and it was so there are moments where we, we do direct a, a little bit but um, it, it, was, it was really good but, uh, but also of the riders there know that he came back, come, he's come back and they're going to see his bike there's nothing they can actually do apart from maybe start to worry a bit yes. <laughs> you know yeah. there's, there's nothing they could actually do to combat it it wasn't as if we'd looked at that and, and people might have seen that bike on the team car beforehand I'm not sure um, it would have been there in plain sight but I doubt anybody would have, would have Re- about really that noticed. Or yeah, yeah. 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 But, um, yeah a small detail, but an interesting one. But yeah, uh, Roglic. Well, all it showed was as we go past Jumbo Visma's hotel, actually. Um, all oh, it yeah. all it showed was was that, yeah that he was had a focus on that climb and, and trying to get it right and using everything in his power legally to to nail it right from a gearing perspective, lightening up ahead. Oh, oh, heading into a Dolomite storm, um, but. But, actually the climb kind of went to form. It was a slow burner, wasn't it, let's be honest, in the GC race. And it kind of went to form. Um, the bit that was the unexpected twist was Geraint Thomas attacking him for the first time with 400 metres to go, by his own admission, not really realising how long 400 metres is at that gradient, at that altitude. Coming a little bit unstuck, getting caught and passed by Roglic, who latched onto, um, uh, uh, finished in the same group as Magnus Court, <laughs> who picked up those bonus seconds, denying Roglic the bonus seconds, which would have been significant. But um, either way, he took a three-second split um, because of Magnus Court's position on the road, if you, you know that bit. I can't be bothered to explain it all, but many of you will understand where the split is measured from. So it's slightly exaggerated that Geraint Thomas lost those three seconds to Roglic. However, we were talking before we started podding when we were just driving off the mountain earlier on this evening. We think that we do understand how Roglic has prepared for this Giro. We do think it's probably the right thing to do. And increasingly, we understand that the focus of his attentions has all been about the last two days. Um, and it explains some of his lack of power, just generally, on the, on the other individual time trials. But we think, unless something untoward happens tomorrow, we think that he's not quite got enough watts under the hood to get this job done and break Geraint Thomas. And that's our expectation of how it's going to play out tomorrow. Yeah, he put that one big acceleration in, didn't he, today? which immediately um, got rid of Almeida, um, but straight across the gap um, very quickly, actually. And noticeably, what Geraint Thomas didn't do was take his time and get across. He just been bang, straight across. So there's a, there's, Geraint's got this, it's a freshness to him. There's that, an added explosivity. He just was banged straight on the wheel and, and saved for the end when, by his own admissions, um, went a little bit early maybe 400 metres um, to go on, on a normal climb, not at altitude, he might have held it, or he certainly wouldn't have shipped any time. But if you go into the red, especially on those kind of gradients, you don't come back from it. So he paid in the last few metres by his own admission, just timed that wrong. But otherwise, I think Goran Thomas uh, showed that he is he's the strongest, or maybe not by much, but by enough to win this Giro. Um, but yeah, he's... Roglic is the man that's got to go quite a bit faster than Geraint Thomas in this final time trial. And if you look at the first section of the time trial, I think Geraint will put time into him. And the way he's been climbing, I, I don't know where Roglic is going to get that time from. Um, so, still a lot of pressure, and it is a pressure moment, but his history has said that sometimes, <laughs> not all the time, but Roglic has suffered in these moments. Um, and although there have been fewer for Geraint, um, when he's had to step up and deal with these moments, 
he, he deals with them really well. He looks implacable at the moment. He looks so so in control. Um, yeah, I'm going through a really spooky tunnel now. Sorry. Oh yeah. Well, it's getting pretty dark, and yeah, I'm going to leave you to concentrate. On, and I think I think we'll just park the um, the tour of Britain chat there for now but I, I don't think it's done I think no. we can uh, we've still got two more pods to go yeah. and I think we can uh, we can certainly get involved maybe tomorrow actually while we're waiting for our aeroplane and, we, and yeah. reliving that, that edition of the Tour of Britain and we've got little gaps haven't we because there's, there's a couple of stages that I really just want to get into actually because the more you think about it, and the more it was just a, it was one of the craziest Tour of Britain's oh, ever it was so and the fact that we're waiting that's so interesting we're waiting tomorrow for a 10.30 flight out of northern Italy down to Rome with all the organisation it brings memories back of that eight, um, that um, transfer after the Aberdeen stage when we had to get to the Isle of Wight oh my god yes on the decommissioned hovercraft Uh, yeah well that was it that was it that was the irony because we took off well I mean just we'll touch on this now but we won't go into details but Aberdeen airport Mick had got hold of a um, an ex-military what do you call those centurion no what are they called those um, propeller aircraft that uh, you know with with the back that folds down oh you know yes. that, 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 those oh, things. Anyway, yeah. well, he had it branded up, didn't he? Yeah. In, in, in Tour of Britain colours. So he got hold of that on the cheap, um, and he basically crammed us all into that. There were no seats, so we all just sat on the f- on the floor. Um, but the irony being that um, this aircraft was too big to land on any of the airfields on the Isle of Wight, so we had to fly down to Southampton Airport and then get in transit vans to the hoverport and then get that, that old hovercraft over to the other one. Yeah. And uh, the riders weren't happy, were they? No, they, they were just... And Which you can understand. Yeah, well, and that's when Alan started to you know, get a little bit... You know, he started to pull that um, Alan, Alan Pataki card and that got a little bit awkward, bless him. I mean, it didn't... Unfortunately, you know, it, 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 there was quite a dust-up on the um, as we were waiting for the hovercraft embar- embarkation. He, re- he suddenly realised he was going to have to get on a hovercraft and at that point... I mean, it has to be said, he, he, uh, out of nowhere, a limousine appeared and whisked him off. Um, yeah. he, so he didn't actually, if you look at the results, it's a DNS uh, after the Aberdeen well, stage, well, the Isle of Wight stage. Well, Ross Downing wasn't going to ride it. Do you remember? He, he basically went to, he said, what, what's going on? And he thought, knob this off, went to duty free, got three bottles of limoncello and got wasted. Do you remember? Yeah, well, he always had the bit of the devil in him, didn't he, Ross? I mean, uh, it, it was... There were different times, Ned. And Dino wasn't impressed, you know, because no. Dino's very focused at that point no. in his career. Like, and he, and it's, it's kind of flexed badly on Dino, but yeah. Ross was like, you know, when... Yeah, the two brothers are, you know, it's, oh, it was unsavoury, so Alessandro Bataki was disappearing the set. The, da- the Downing brothers, by now, were stripped to the waist and wrestling um, in, the, in the car park, much, you know, and then it all... Gibby got involved almost inevitably. Uh, Carol, um, after ste- Carol stepped in, bless her, didn't she? Um, pulled them apart and in the end they, they, they had to apologise to each other yeah. she's told them just say sorry shake hands uh, and, and it was all fine but it was just awkward um, I mean that deep into a bike race like the Tour of Britain it's understandable isn't it been, been, been on, literally on the road for days I know I know uh, but yeah we could touch on the race can't we I mean, maybe tomorrow but yeah, it's yeah, just, t- it was, yeah it was just that well, just memories of like that, that air transport, you know, that big transfer before the final stage for Rome, read the Isle of Wight. Um, yeah. But, yeah, plenty happened in the race the next day, um, obviously not involving Russ, who was off the race, and not involving Alessandro Bataki. Um, but, um, yeah, some interesting stories nonetheless. Um, uh, we'll touch on that tomorrow.